Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. This week, we're actually shifting a little bit. Uh, The last two weeks, we've been in the book of Daniel, and we've been talking about the adversity that we face, in particular, the adversity that we face when those in authority over us are asking us to do something that contradicts God's law. And so what we see in both the stories we looked at in Daniel, we looked at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then we looked at the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And in both of those stories, we see the government telling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel to break God's commands, to do something that directly contradicts what God says in his law that we should not do. And we hit over and over and over again, I hope, that the answer is not to be disrespectful to to those in authority over us, right? Because that would contradict scripture. The answer is that we humbly submit to authority and we accept the punishment that they're going to dish out. That's not super popular today, right? We don't like that. If somebody says, hey, break God's law, we say, forget you, I don't have to do what you say. That's not what the Bible says. That definitely is not what Jesus did. We submit, we say, okay, I can't do what you're asking me to do, and therefore I accept the punishment that you're going to hand down to me. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They went without complaining to the fiery furnace. God saved them. God stepped in. Daniel, Daniel even more so, didn't say a word. Went into the lion's den. God saved him. Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, of whom we all claim to be disciples, right? If you're a disciple, you're supposed to do what your teacher says, what your teacher does. Jesus Christ went to the cross without saying a word. Completely innocent in everything he was accused of, right? Went to the cross without saying a word. God didn't step in and save him, did he? But in doing so, God stepped in ultimately and saved all of us. Praise God, right? So that's the example we follow. Now today we shift, because today in the story of Nehemiah, and this is kind of a weird sermon, it was awkward to try to pick one passage, because we're in in all effect, we're preaching the entire book of Nehemiah, at least the first part of it, because we're going through this entire conflict that Nehemiah faced. And so, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah does not, is not going against those in authority over him. The adversity that Nehemiah faces is adversity from his peers. And I think, based on where we're all at, now yes, we have some friction that Christians have with governments at times, some different laws that Christians should be against, if we're being honest, because they go against biblical things. But really, the majority of the adversity that you and I face day to day is adversity from our peers, is adversity from the people around us. And so we see some of the same tactics 
in Nehemiah that we face today. When you walk, and we talked about this a little bit last week with Daniel, when you walk with integrity, when you walk with God, people don't like it. There are going to be people who just don't like it. And so they are going to do everything they can to go against what God is telling you to do, to cause this adversity within you, right? So we see this shift. And the other shift that we see here in the book of Nehemiah or in the example of Nehemiah, is that his adversity actually is not against the law of God. There's not a law that Nehemiah is trying to walk in that, that these people are saying, uh-uh, don't do this law, don't do that. Nehemiah's adversity comes from his calling. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about. The adversity of the called. There is this really weird thing that happens you all know I am not a fan of, oh dear, I am not a fan of things We'll get it eventually here, I hope. Will it let you go to it, Michael? The television. Technology is really great when it works, right? Okay, here we go. I got it on mine, so you all are going to have to soldier ahead. Yep. So we're ta- the adversity of the called. There's this really weird link. Now you all know I am I'm very cautious to do formulas, right? Anytime somebody's like, "Here's the formula for blessing," it's like. Eh. Because typically formulas say, at least when you're talking about math or science, formulas say X plus Y always equals Z. In my experience, in my reading of scripture, God doesn't do X plus Y always equals C. There are some things that God does that. Any characteristic of God, God doesn't change, right? So those things are constant. But lots of times, Christians, we're bad at this. We're going to talk about this. We're really bad at when God moves, especially in ways that make us uncomfortable, in ways that we try to put God in a box, right? And even worse, we try to put disciples of God in a box. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Christians don't do that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Christians don't ask questions. Are you serious? Nobody raises their hand on a Sunday morning in the middle of church while pastor's preaching, right? None of you do that, right? But... We, we have this tendency to put Christians in boxes because it makes us feel uncomfortable, right? But there is a strange link that God has. If you dig hard enough into it, you may be able to find examples that don't fit this, but the majority of the time, there is a direct correlation between your calling and adversity. The bigger the calling God has on your life, the more adversity you can expect to face. Sign me up for calling, right? But that's the problem we as Christians have today, is we want these enormous callings. I want to pastor a mega church. I want to have 5,000 people and da-da-da-da-da. I want to do these miracles. And Then you better be ready to walk through the ringer. Calling doesn't come cheap, y'all. And there is a direct link that God puts. And there's a reason for this. See, Jesus actually teaches in Luke 16. He teaches it in all of the Gospels a little bit different. But he teaches, he who is faithful 
in the small things will be faithful in the big things, right? And he who is unrighteous in the small things will be unrighteous in the big things. If you are not willing to walk through adversity at this stage, the small stage, God's not going to ask you to walk through adversity on the big stage because it just gets bigger. So you've got to prove yourself faithful in the small things. And you've got to face adversity, not man's way, right? You've got to show God that you can face adversity his way. And that's what we've been talking about this whole sermon series, right? Face the storm. Cling to your anchor. That's God's way of facing adversity. Running into it, right? Not facing the wrong things, but facing the right things. So we have to prove ourselves faithful in the small things. We have to be willing to suffer adversity in order to step into the big calling that God has on our lives. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. This is actually in the very beginning. Nehemiah hears God speak. God shows him a problem. And Nehemiah responds. The word of God says this. This is Nehemiah 1 in the very beginning, starting at verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekilah. Got me. Lex is not here to enjoy that. I got tripped up too. Got Pastor Jeremy too. Kurt, you can tell her after service. Jeremy fell flat on his face. That was embarrassing. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. All right, this is a pillar of the gospel house. It's one of the first things that my father-in-law taught me. The, some of you, you, you probably can say this after I say the first part, but the most basic definition of ministry. You want to you you do ministry? We want to do ministry? What is strip it down, right? Get the church, get the, you know, all the junk out of the way. What is the most basic definition of ministry? Ministry responds to need. Ministry responds to need. All right? That's the most simple, basic definition of ministry. You see a need, you respond to it. Okay? Nehemiah sees a need. His friends come, they tell him the state of Jerusalem, that they are just broken. The walls around the city are torn down, they're open to attacks, they're in danger. Ministry responds to need. Nehemiah sees a need, and he responds. We got to be a little careful here. I got convicted on this. This is somewhere, you know, I got your hand in the cookie jar, right? And the Holy Spirit was like, bam, no, Jeremy, stop it. Because here's the, here's the problem. Listen, I'll, I'll tell on myself. I tend to major on one side of ministry response to need, all right? Because, and here's the problem. This is the problem we have. I have seen it abused, all right? 
Here's, here's why. Now, ministry responds to need. So what Jeremy says is, go, 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 go. See a need, respond. Go, respond. Don't sit around and pray about it. Respond, right? Is that what Nehemiah does here, though? Holy Spirit gave me the slap, like the you know nuns with the rulers, right on the knuckles, right? Because that's not what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah slows his roll, and he says, I'm going to approach God, and I'm going to ask him if this is a need I should respond to, right? Now we've got to be careful, because like I said, I've seen that abused. Have you all seen that abused sometimes? Remember our, our favorite quote from A.W. Tozer? You guys remember that one? Prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience, right? Because that's the other side of that coin. I have seen a lot of times there's somebody hungry, right? There's somebody without proper clothing. There's, you know, all, all these different things. And I have seen people say, okay, oh, I'll go home and pray about that. Are you kidding me? What, like, what, what, what do you need here? What's, what, what do you need to pray about? You know, the book of James talks about this. If you see somebody hungry and in need of clothes and you have money in your pocket or food to give them, you don't have to pray about that, right? Respond, right? But this is a big thing. Sometimes Jeremy has the problem of seeing a big thing and running to it without asking God if I should run to it. And the problem is we find ourselves facing the wrong storm, right? Because I haven't asked God. God, is this something that I need to respond to? Sorry. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah slows down, and instead of responding right away, Nehemiah asks God for favor for Jerusalem. Nehemiah says, God, you go ahead of me on this. And if I need to go, I'll go. But if not, I'm trusting that you're going ahead of me. I think that's our problem sometimes, right? Is that we don't actually trust that God's got it under control. And so we see a need. You know, I noticed this a lot during COVID. Uh, when, when COVID first hit, you know, there were a lot of needs. And part of it was nobody really knew what was going on. And so there were a lot of needs that popped up right away. You know, we, like we did, we did like food. We, we, would, we would do meals every Wednesday night because people weren't really sure, like they weren't working, you know, money wasn't coming in, so they weren't really sure what was going on. So we did these meals. But as we went on, as COVID continued, you know, we were doing these meals for people but as we connected with these people, and it was really cool, it was one of the favorite ministry things that I've ever done in my life because we actually got to make connections with these families. But as we continue with these families, the families began telling us food actually isn't a need for us because the government has actually you know, upped our you know, food stamps or you know, whatever it was. The government's providing these means so that we have food. And so that's not really a need. But as we continued on, we kept noticing all of these churches continuing to just shove food on people, doing these food drives and these food collections and these meals and like all this stuff. The whole time we're sitting there thinking like, wait a minute, all these people are telling us that food's not a need. But isn't that the problem we get in, right? 
you guys have heard it's the Christian joke, but you know, you go on a missions trip and the youth group goes on the missions trip and paints the same wall that the youth group before them painted blue, now they're painting it red, right? Because the missionaries in Honduras don't really know what to do with the youth kids. And it's funny, but it's true, right? We, we go on mission for God, but we don't ever really ask him what we're supposed to be doing. And so we go and we do these crazy things but we never stop and ask, hold on a second, is this actually a need? Like, God, is this a need you want me to respond to? We never even ask the people we're serving. Do you really need me to paint this wall red instead of blue? Well, no, not really, but we don't really know what else to do with you. We've got to stop and ask, God, is this a need that we need to respond to? Because when we take the time to ask, look what happens to Nehemiah. This is crazy, y'all. I think lots of times we fly right through this and don't think about it. Nehemiah goes to the king, Artaxerxes. It's a good thing we didn't have to read that because that's really crazy. But he goes to the king. The king tells him, he notices he says, says, Nehemiah, what's going on? You look a little sad. Nehemiah tells him what's going on. The king says, you know what? Take a vacation. Go. I'm going to give you all of the supplies that you need. I'm going to give you all of the funding that you need. I'm going to send you with a group of soldiers. I'm going to send you with some hired hands. You guys realize how crazy that is? The king of Babylon, now you've got to remember at one point, the, Judah, the nation of Judah, was, was fighting against Babylon, right? Fighting them. Who, who burned down the walls of Jerusalem? Babylon, right? Because they came to conquer them. So they burned him down. So now there's this guy. He's a cupbearer for the king. It's not like he holds some high position. He's a cupbearer for the king. And he comes and says, I'm just really sad because the walls around Jerusalem are all burnt down. And the king says, you know what? Let's fortify this city that once revolted against us. Kings don't do that, y'all. Right? And I'm going to fully fund it. Send you everything you need. Y'all, if God has called you to it, He's going to provide, but we've got to slow down because Jeremy tends to say, I'll do all the fundraising by myself and I'll put it all on my back and I'll carry the supplies and I'll go into it without any idea what I'm doing. And God says, Jeremy, if you would slow down, you'd see that I've already provided everything and you actually don't even have to pick up a hammer because I'll do it for you. But we've got to slow down. Jeremy, you've got to slow down. Slow down. One more thing. We haven't even hit three main points yet. Jeez, Louise, boy. One more thing before we go. Nehemiah 2, 11 through 12. We see this about Nehemiah and his calling. It says, So I came to Jerusalem and, there, uh, and was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. When you are called by God, don't be so quick to find out everyone else's opinion on your calling. I have seen this happen a lot, and if I'm being really honest, I have delayed a lot of God's calling in my life because I have waited for the approval of man. Now, God's timing is perfect, so even in my mistakes... It's, it's all good, right? God knows the beginning from the end. 
everything that's going to happen, but I have delayed steps of obedience because I have been seeking after the approval of man instead of just stepping into the call that I know God has on my life. There is one measuring rod, Christian, that you have in your life. It's right here. The Word of God. This is the measuring rod. Not what your pastor thinks of your calling, not what your friends think of your calling, not even what your highest spiritual counsel. Now look, is it bad to run things past trusted friends? No. But ladies and gentlemen, I learned this the hard way. There will come a point where your trusted friends, the wisest spiritual counsel you have, will tell you something contrary to what God is telling you. Not because they're awful, not because they're scumbags, not because they really just want to get you real good. Not, nothing, none of that. But because God sends this adversity to see, Jeremy, are you listening to me? Or are you listening to your wise spiritual counsel? Because there comes a point where I have, and it's scary, y'all. Anybody else want to say? It's scary. To step out, when everybody else is saying, uh 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 uh, you don't plant churches that way. Uh 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 uh, uh. that's not how we do things here. And to say, this is what God's telling me to do, y'all. Like, I'm sorry, I'm going to offend some people, some of you are going to be upset, but I've got to step into this because this is what God says. And that moment will come. It's not if, it's when. That moment will come. And when it comes, you absolutely measure it out here. The calling you hear from God, you measure it based on the word of God. Does the word of God call me to do this? And if it lines up, step into it. You don't have to ask other people what they think about it because lots of times we say, you know, well, Proverbs says to seek wise counsel. Yes, Proverbs does say that. You are correct. But there comes a point when it's not about seeking wise counsel if we're being honest. It's about building ourselves up. It's about getting the approval of man. And, you know, the longer I walk in this gospel of mine, the more I just become aware, if I seek the approval of God above everything else, the approval of man will come when it needs to. But more often than not, I'm going to have to go against that. And I'm okay with that. It's not a conceited thing. It's not a, nobody else knows what to do. You don't know me, right, with the head wag. That's not what it is. But it is saying, if God has called me to it, I trust him. And his approval is the only one that I seek. If we're about that, everything else is going to line up. Because that's exactly how it lines up biblically for all of these characters. God goes before because we put his approval above everything else and let the chips fall where they may. That's what Nehemiah does. And crazy enough, when we look at it, he makes it through and he fits all of our three main points. So again, our three main points, if you haven't been taking notes, the, pro the promise of adversity that Nehemiah faces, facing the storm and then the anchor. The promise of adversity that Nehemiah faces is actually, there's, there's different levels to it. 
Because when one form of adversity doesn't work, his enemies go to a different one. And so we're going to look at each of those different tactics because the attacks that these men use against Nehemiah to try to knock him off of his calling are the same things that people use against us. We talked about this last week. The devil doesn't change his ways, right? Really, when you step back and you look at it, in the Garden of Eden, what did Satan say to Adam and Eve? Did God really say, right? He uses these tactics, fear, questioning whether God's really talking to you. He uses these same tactics over and over and over again. And why shouldn't he? Because they work, right? Let's be real honest. When we let them, they're effective. And that's the exact same tactics we see him use through Nehemiah's friends. The first tactic that he uses is a familiar one for those of us who have gone through kindergarten. It's name-calling. Nehemiah 2, 9 through 10 says this, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite officially heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Now we talked about this. When you walk into God's calling for your life, when you are walking by the Spirit, when you are walking with God with integrity, there are going to be people who don't like that right? It's going to rub people the wrong way. This Sanballat and Tobiah, they're both from nations that opposed Israel. Sanballat's a Samaritan leader. Tobiah's a leader of the Ammonites. Israel and those two, they don't get along. So they want Nehemiah to fail. Y'all, there are people in your life who want you to fail. Could be for different reasons, but I promise you, if they know you're a Christian by the way you walk, listen, y'all, not by the way you talk. There's a lot of Christians who are on easy street. No persecution, no adversity, because they're Christian in name only. But when you walk the walk, people will not like you. You will face adversity. That's the problem, right? And now we've got to be a little bit careful here, because we can, in this sermon series... We can fly right by one underlying teaching that's going on here that we may not look at. Because, like we talked about at the very beginning, one of the most often sources of adversity actually comes from within the church. It's not those outside the church. When you look at Jesus, who was Jesus' number one opponent when he walked the earth? His number one source of adversity wasn't the Romans right? It was the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? Because they said, Jesus, you're not checking the boxes. You're doing some things that we don't do down here our way, right? Not much has changed. You still have Christians today. Whoa, 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 whoa. We don't do things that way. You're, that's not the Christian box that we go to. You got to come fit in the box, right? And so we see people acting like this, and so we try to get them to fit in the box. We tear them down, tell them that their ideas are stupid, 
tell them that there's no way God's calling you to do that, right? Because it makes us feel better, makes us feel comfortable. If God only moves in certain ways, then he can't ask us to get off our bottoms and go out and actually do something, right? So we tear these people down instead of freeing them to be who God has called them to be. We see the same thing. Now, granted, it's happening with, in Nehemiah with those outside of the faith, but we see the same thing happen to him. But lots of times in this sermon series, we can look and we can think of, okay, what's all the adversity that I've faced? Okay, yeah, yeah, like, oh, I'm the one facing adversity, right? Because we always want to be the hero of the story, right? When the gospel actually says that we're all the villains, right? So an underlying question we have to ask ourselves in this sermon series is, am I the source of adversity to someone else? Right? Am, am I, is there someone in my life that I am not allowing to walk into the calling that God has on their life? Because they make me a little uncomfortable. Because I don't want God to move that way. Right? And one of the things that we most often go to is this form of name-calling. We see it. Sorry, this is being all goofy today. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3 says this, Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Have you ever had anybody do that to you when you try to step into God's calling? what? Are you kidding me? You can't do that. That's way too big. You'll never be able to do that, right? They ridicule what God has called you to do. They make you question whether God's really called you, right? Satan's first trick. Did God really say that you're supposed to be an apostle? Did God really say that he called you to be a teacher? Did God really say, right? And they make you question. Question whether you can actually hear God's voice, Question your calling. Question your qualifications. But like we said before, if God has called you to it, he will equip you with everything you need to do what he's called you to do. You just have to stay humbly plugged into him. Humbly plugged into him, right? Humility is a lost art. Humbly plugged into him. And the reason we have to stay humbly plugged into him is because when name-calling doesn't work, the opponents of Nehemiah turn to threats. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arab, the Ammonites, and the Ashdites heard that the repair of the wall of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. When name-calling doesn't work, when they call names, when they make you doubt your calling and they see that it's not working, you trust God more than you trust yourself, right? Actually, uh, before Caitlin Motzinger left, Caitlin used to lead worship for us, for those of you who don't know Caitlin. Before she left, she, she bought me a mug. It says, Godfidence. 
And it says, knowing that I can't, but that God can. And I love that mug because it's so true, right? We don't need confidence. I don't need to go about this life with confidence. That's not what calling is. Calling is Godfidence, that I'm confident in the God who has called me. And I'm confident in whatever the outcome is, right? My life verse, Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Even if his plan for my life doesn't look good to the world, even if it looks like death and destruction and all that's at the end of that road for me is, is to destroy me, I trust that he's got a good plan. And I'm willing to pay that price if he says it's good. That's Godfidence, right? That's what we need in our calling. But that's what Nehemiah has. When these people try to deter him from walking into this calling, it doesn't work. So they start threatening him. And that's what the world does, right? When the world makes fun of us as Christians, when the world calls us names, and it still doesn't knock us off the path God had for us, then they resort to threats. They resort to threats of violence. Now, thankfully, Nehemiah figures this plot out. For those of you unfamiliar with the story, spoiler alert, he figures it out that they're trying to hurt him. Because, again, if God has called you to it, he's going to protect you through it, right? And when that doesn't work, Nehemiah's opponents move to, I think, what is the most successful tactic of the enemy today. They try to distract him. They just try to keep him busy, right? They try to keep his eyes off of his real calling. They try to keep his eyes off of the real storm. That's what we've been talking about this whole sermon series, right? It says this in uh, Nehemiah 6, 1 through 2. Now, when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at time, that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Shepherim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. You can hear them, right? Nehemiah, just come, come meet with us. You know, whether the plan was to harm him or what, whatever the plan was, Nehemiah, just come, come meet with us. It's not going to take long. It's just, it'll just be a couple-hour meeting, right? It's like the staff meetings that you have to have at work. <sighs> Couldn't you have just sent an email, right? Come meet with us, Nehemiah. Just, just take some time and come meet with us. But Nehemiah knew, I can't come meet with you. He knew that they were asking him to do a task that was less than what God had called him to do. But Nehemiah's opponents, very fond of the phrase, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. They try again. It actually tells us they sent him like five letters to try to schedule this meeting with him, right? Then when that doesn't work, they try a worldly distraction. In verses 6 through 7, it says, In this letter was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gashum says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall. And you are to be their king, according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Nehemiah, we, everybody's talking. You're going to become the king. 
in Jerusalem. Even King Artaxerxes knows you better stop what you're doing and go and make sure that you two are still cool because you know what happens to guys who say they're kings. He's going to kill you. But not even that worked. Nehemiah said, nah, I'm going to keep on. And when that doesn't work, they actually turn to religion. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Methabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee, and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. That's kind of a dirty trick, isn't it? These opponents actually hire a man of God. A man of God, a prophet, right? To give a false word to Nehemiah so that he will come and hide, so that he will stop working, stop walking in the calling God has for him to come and hide in the temple. That's tricky, isn't it? Money makes men do funny things. But to have the church turn against him. But Nehemiah knows what God called him to. And he doesn't budge. He clings to his anchor, and he faces the storm. Every single one of these attacks, Nehemiah does exactly what Jesus says in John 16, right? He faces the storm courageously. Every single trial, every moment, Nehemiah faces the right storm. Not the little storms, but the right storm. And I think the attitude that best summarizes this is in Nehemiah 6.3. Nehemiah 6.3, this is after Nehemiah has received the letters saying, hey, come meet with us. Come have a meeting with us. We, we got to meet. We got to talk. We need, this needs to be a peaceful exchange. Come meet with us. Nehemiah sends a message back to these enemies of his. And he says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. This is Nehemiah's response in some form or another in the face of every attack of the enemy. I know what God has called me to do, and I am going to do it until the work is done. Nothing you can say Nothing you can do is going to stop me. Y'all, Nehemiah is facing this storm. There's one point in, in this story, those of you who are familiar with the story, you know this, but those of you who aren't, there's one point in the story of Nehemiah where these threats come out, right? They're going to come and they're, they're going to come in the night and kill them as they're working on this wall. Nehemiah's command to his men isn't, go protect yourselves, go hide, stop the work. We don't want to die. No, his command is, Take trumpets, take a sword, and you hold a hammer in one hand 
and you hold a sword in the other, and you finish the work. Christian, our hands are soft today, right? You know what that means? You've done manual labor. You get calluses on your hands, right? Our hands are soft as Christians today. We don't have calluses because we don't pick up our hammers and we don't pick up our swords. We let the work stop at the drop of a hat. At the first sight of name-calling, we stop the work. Stop, stop, stop. Persecution, persecution. ACLU, where are you? I need your help. But God says, pick up your hammer and pick up your sword and don't stop the work. Don't stop the work. I wonder how many of us are focused on our little work while we let God's big work, God's great work, our calling, stop so that we can do all of these little things. And y'all, you know this. There are a thousand things in this world to distract us, aren't there? But it is about time, Christian. Man, go home and do this. You're going to look a little crazy to your spouse or if there's anybody in your home with you. You might look a little crazy, but it's for a good cause. Crazy for Jesus is good crazy. Pick up your phone. Open up the Facebook app. And you stare down that phone and say to it, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Y'all, we got to be about it, right? Because you talk about time killers. How many things do we need to proclaim that to? Christian, proclaim it. Do it. Go home and do it. Whatever the little work is that's keeping you from stepping into your calling. It might be something good. It's not like all of these are evil things. They start with good intentions, right? I've been there. Well, I use Facebook as a ministry. I post Bible verses every, every morning and baloney, Jeremy. Baloney. Congratulations, you do post Bible verses every morning. But then you spend six hours scrolling through political feeds that you really don't need to read. Right? But we excuse it. We, we play it off. As, and how easy would it have been for Nehemiah? You know, these guys are right. God calls me to love my neighbors. And so the loving thing would really be to go down and meet with them and explain to them that we don't mean any harm here. We're just trying to build the wall around Jerusalem so the people feel safe. That's not what God called him to do. He called him to build the wall. And so Nehemiah is all about it. I I do need to clarify because this is one of those teachings that's very easy to run away with, right? Nehemiah is doing a great work. And so you have great works, and then you have less than great works, right? I don't need to spell that out for you. That's kind of, we read between the lines there. There is a difference, though. There are great works. There are less than great works. There are big works, and there are little works. This is not a teaching that says, When you're walking in the calling of God, all you got to do is the big stuff and leave the little stuff for all the peons. Because that's not biblical, right? Because that's the problem that we get into sometimes. We can say, well, God's called me to a great work, so 
I don't need to worry about all these little manual tasks. I'm not going to do all of these little things. Those are small things. But like we said earlier, what does Jesus teach in Luke 16? He who is faithful in the small things will be faithful in the big things. Right? He who is unfaithful or unrighteous in the small things will be unrighteous in the big things. Can I warn you? Can the Holy Spirit warn you today? Some of us will never walk into God's big things because we aren't faithful in the little things. The little things are not lesser things. The little things are absolutely necessary. And guess what? When you get into the big callings, there are going to be a thousand lesser things or little things that you have to do. They're still part of the calling. Jesus Christ came to this earth and he washed his disciples' feet. Y'all, a little historical context. I don't know if you need this, but they didn't have shoes back then, right? The disciples weren't rocking the latest pair of the Jordans. They wore sandals or went barefoot, right? Jesus wasn't washing these freshly manicured feet. Is it manic pedicure? What's a feet? Pedicure? Okay, Jesus, I've never had one, so <laughs> saved myself a man card there. If I would have got it right, everybody would be like, oh, Jeremy's. But they, they, they weren't, I mean, even if I took off my shoes and socks and had somebody wash my feet, right? People do that at weddings sometimes now where they wash each other's feet. They're still clean. These weren't clean feet. Jesus was washing dirty, stanky old feet, right? Gross. If Jesus, the king of the universe, came and washed feet, I can vacuum my church building, right? Miss Janet, right? I can mow the grass. I can balance a budget. Look, do I love doing those things? Absolutely not. But do I do them joyfully because it's part of my calling? Absolutely I do. Because yes, God has called me to pastor this church, but that is not a, like, I'm honored. That's not a badge of honor that I wear to lord over people, though. Right? It's a badge of service that I use to serve other people. And that's what God's calling is. Unfortunately, we get it in our minds that ministry, instead of ministry responding to need, ministry is all flashy, right? Miracles and healing and lights and preaching and all of this cool stuff. That's what ministry is. It's not. It's a thousand little things that happen. I mean, that's, that's what you all think, right? Jeremy just shows up on Sunday morning, preaches for way too long, and then we all get out of here. But other than that, what's, what's, what does he do, right? There's nothing that he fills 40 hours a week with. But that's the mistaken idea that we get, right? I just show up on Sunday morning and it happens. If I, and, and the problem is we've got people who do that. People who show up on Sunday morning without a thread of any kind of preparation or planning done, and they show up, Holy Spirit's going to have to move because I didn't do anything this week. Guys, that's not giving God excellence. I, 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 I really have a beef with that because I've had people say that to me. So lots of times I'll talk to them, people about like how I prep for a sermon, 
And like, I prep for sermons. I like to write verbatim everything I'm going to say. And then actually after I've written it, I rarely ever look at it. But I still like to have it written down so that when we have the computer spaz out and I lose all my notes and lose where I'm at, I can at least find it, right? But I've talked to people and they're like, well, why do you do any of that? You should just show up on the day of and just let the Holy Spirit take control. Guys, come on now. Now listen, I've had sermons where God's told me, I don't want you to write any notes. I want you to show up on Sunday, I want you to preach, and I want you to just let me do it. And I've done it, and he showed up. But guys, if God doesn't tell me that, I'm going to absolutely prepare my tail off to get up here and preach. And honestly, I would hope that the Holy Spirit's with me Monday through Saturday while I'm putting this thing together, just as much as he is right now with me. Right? But y'all, God demands excellence. And I think the quicker we get this, the quicker we're going to be to step into the big things God has for us. God wants excellence from you in every area of your life. The smallest detail, the littlest things. Because guess what's incredible? When you work your tail off, what's, what's the Bible tell us, right? Work as if unto the Lord. Work heartily as if unto the Lord, right? When you do everything with excellence, as if you're doing everything unto the Lord, even the little things, people notice. Christian, people are watching you. You may not know it all the time, but as soon as you tell someone you're a Christian, they are watching you. A lot of them are watching you because they want you to fail. They want to see you slip up. They want to see you use a curse word or, you know, whatever it is that's going to make them feel better about themselves. Oh, well, if Christians do that, I'm good, right? They want that. But others are watching you because you inspire them. Your integrity, the way you walk with your God, it shows them something different, something that they desperately want. That's what we see here with Nehemiah. Nehemiah does everything with excellence. He will not stop his work. The people see it, and they see straight through Nehemiah. And who do they see? They see Nehemiah's anchor. Our final point. Nehemiah steps into God's call, and he won't step out of it for anything. He endures the fiery darts of the enemy, he faces this storm until he has completed everything that God has asked of him. And when he does, the word of God tells us this. This is Nehemiah 6, 15 through 16. It says, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of the month Elul, in 52 days, when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. Did you guys hear that? When all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. Why? Why did the enemies lose their confidence? For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Come on, somebody. That'll preach, right? When you walk in the calling and the anointing that God has put on your life, the enemy loses 
his confidence. Face the right storm, y'all. Not your enemy. That's not the message here. That's not the gospel. When you step into your calling, when you step into the, your anointing, your enemies lose their confidence. Ah, that's way too small. When you step into the call that God has on your life and you work in the power of his anointing, the enemy loses his confidence. Satan himself is shaking in his boots any time a Christian puts on the full armor of God and steps into the calling that God has on his or her life. Every time. We talked about this last week, right? We're told that Satan is a roaring lion walking around seeking someone to devour. When you walk in the call and anointing of the Holy Spirit, he's got nothing left. His roar becomes a little yip. He loses his confidence. The last thing Satan wants is to see God's people walking into the calling and anointing that God has for them. The last thing that Satan wants is to see God's church step into the power and promise that comes when we walk in obedience with him. When that happens, Satan loses his confidence. That lion becomes a little pup. That fiery furnace that looks so scary before becomes a burning coals, barely lit, right? We see Satan and his trials and his temptations for what they really are. Because when we step into God's call on our life, when we walk in obedience to him, we walk with him. When God is with you, who can be against you? No one. When we walk with God, he is so huge. He is so vast, so powerful, so perfect that everything else pales in comparison. You know, one of the things that, gets to, that is in the Bible that, about end times, you know, when the world ends and we all go to heaven and everything ends, one of the things that is talked about frequently that I actually have never really heard anybody talk about a ton is that when we get to heaven, there is no sun. There is no moon. Right? God himself is the source of our light. Actually, as I was getting ready for this sermon, I actually started to type in like all the scientific facts, you know, to like throw all those at you, but I realized it's all gonna go right over everybody's head anyway. But like, do you guys know how much energy our sun produces? If you would, that'd be a really crazy fact to know off the top of your head, which is why I had to look it up. But it's insane, right? I mean, there, there is no other power source that is anywhere near that. And everyone will tell you that our stars or our sun isn't even a big star, right? When you look across the universe, there are stars way bigger than what our star is. But even the most powerful star in the entire universe can't even hold a candle to our God. That's how huge our God is. That's how big the God who walks with you is. Can I ask, what are we afraid of? What is keeping us from stepping into this calling? Because if that's how big my God is, what in the world is there that can stand against me?
nothing. Now listen, I know some of you, even those of you that I don't really know, the skeletons in your closet or the trials that you're walking through. That's life, right? We're all walking through something. But can I encourage you today, no matter what storm you're walking through, no matter what fiery furnace you're facing, no matter what lion's den you feel like you've been thrown into, don't stop walking. Don't stop for a second the task that God has called you to. Even if you have to hold your hammer in one hand and a sword in the other, don't put it down. Don't come down for anything less than everything God has called you to do. Because if he has called you to it, he will see you through it. Step into that calling. God needs the church on fire. And the only way that happens is if we all together step into God's calling on our lives. He is with you right there in the middle of the fire walking with you. And people see you, Christian. They see you walking through this storm. That doesn't mean to put on an act. That doesn't mean to fake it till you make it. Be real. Be honest. Tell people you're struggling. I think part of our problem today as the church is we've got this idea that God wants us to put on acts for people. Christians don't struggle, so I'm happy all the time. Stop. Be real with people. I know for me personally, I find it way more powerful when I see somebody that I know is broken, that I know is going through the ringer, come in every Sunday and put their hands in the air because even though they're walking in the middle of the fire, their God is worthy. Even though they are through the ringer, their God is worthy and nothing is going to stop them from singing those praises. Christian, walk with integrity. Tell people you're struggling. Let them see the real you, but walk with integrity. Show them that even if your God slays you, your hope is in him. Live in such a way, whether it's in the middle of adversity or in the middle of the good times, whether it's through suffering or through celebrating, live in such a way that his presence in you is undeniable. Because guess what? His presence is undeniable. Jesus Christ made sure of that on the cross. He perfectly bridged the chasm between us and God and brought us into harmony with our Father. And now, his grave still stands empty. The ultimate proof that he is with you. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.